Hey everyone, this is Brie. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. This is episode one of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Wow, guys, this book is a torture to read. I hate to say it, most of them I like. I really didn't like Dracula and I really don't like Frankenstein. I think I like Frankenstein a little bit more than I liked Dracula, but it's rough, guys. Okay, in this episode, we're covering context and overview, major characters. I'll mention what the themes are so you can look out for them. I will cover chapters 1 through 14, or if you're in a book with volumes, I will cover all of volume 1 and then chapters 1 through 6 of volume 2. In the next episode, I'll cover the rest of the book and then go in-depth on the themes. Okay, so context and overview. Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley in 1818. Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin in 1797 in London and died in 1851 in London. Her father was philosopher William Godwin, and her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a writer, philosopher, and an early advocate for women's rights. But her mother died shortly after giving birth to her, so she was raised by her father. When she was 15, she met Percy Shelley, a poet and a philosopher. He was 19 at the time, and they fell in love. But Percy was already married to another woman. But despite that, Percy and Mary fell in love. They started a relationship, and they ran off to France together when Mary was 17 and Percy was 21. And Percy had a pregnant wife and child back home that he ran away from. Mary got pregnant with his child, but the child died a couple weeks after it was born. In 1816, she gave birth to a son, and in that same year, her half-sister committed suicide, Percy's wife committed suicide, and a couple weeks after his wife committed suicide, Percy and Mary got married. Super cool. So they had three children, but only one of them survived. Percy died in a sailing accident, and Mary died at age 53 from a brain tumor. And it should be noted that it was during all of this darkness and craziness of suicide and marriage that Mary wrote Frankenstein. So her life was pretty dark, I guess you could say. Okay, so after Percy and Mary were married, they traveled Europe together, and in Germany they visited Frankenstein Castle, where an alchemist famously performed experiments and she really loved it. So after this, they spent a famous summer with Lord Byron in Geneva, Switzerland. And this is where Mary got the idea for Frankenstein. So it was a rainy summer that they spent indoors reading German ghost stories. And Lord Byron one day suggested that they all write their own ghost stories. So she started with a short story about a corpse being reanimated, and her husband encouraged her to turn it into a novel. So that's where we get Frankenstein. The first edition was published anonymously in 1818 when she was 20. Her name and credit were added to the second edition three years later. In the introduction of the book, it says that some critics were scandalized by rumors that a woman might have written this wicked and immoral work, and many considered it impossible that someone so young could possess such creative genius. Mary was not yet 19 when she began Frankenstein, and people insisted that her husband must have had a hand in writing her novel, because heaven forbid a female write a novel about a monster, right? Okay, so the full title of Frankenstein is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. So from my very limited knowledge of Greek mythology, Prometheus was a titan who created humankind in the image of the gods. He taught them how to hunt, how to like live, I guess, essentially. Zeus took fire away from the humans and Prometheus stole it and gave it back to the humans and he was punished eternally for this. So that's who Prometheus is. Okay, Frankenstein is widely considered the first science fiction novel. It's definitely gothic. There are two editions, the 1818 edition and the 1831 edition. So according to Wikipedia, the differences in the two editions are. In the 1818 version, the original version, there's an epigraph from Milton's Paradise Lost, which is removed in the 1831 version. Some chapters are expanded in the 1831 version, but I think the main difference is that Elizabeth's origin in the 1818 version She was Victor's cousin, 
And in the 1831 version, she is an orphan who is taken in by his family and raised like his cousin. I think the only reason that was a change is because Elizabeth and Frankenstein end up getting married and they didn't want her to be his cousin. Anyway, in the 1818 version, Victor Frankenstein is portrayed more sympathetically. But in the 1831 edition, Shelley is very critical of his decisions and his actions, which I think is interesting. She changed over the course of like 13 years. She changed her opinion maybe slightly about Dr. Frankenstein and his actions. I think that's really interesting. Shelley removed many references to scientific ideas, which were more popular around the time that she wrote the 1818 edition. And just some like dialogue is removed or placed differently in the 1831 version. I am summarizing the 1831 version, which is what most teachers teach. Anyway, those are the differences. Before I do the major characters, this quote from the introduction I really liked. It says, today Victor Frankenstein and his creature are symbols in the popular imagination for the dangers of tampering with nature. Okay, major characters. The first character that we meet is Robert Walton. He is a seafarer And he's on a mission in the Arctic when he comes across Dr. Frankenstein. He has letters in the beginning and the very end of the novel. So he opens and closes the novel with letters that he wrote to his sister about Frankenstein and his story. The next character is Frankenstein himself. So Frankenstein is often used to describe the monster. When we say we're dressing up as Frankenstein, people dress up as the monster. But the doctor, the scientist, is Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein. The monster is just called the monster. Victor Frankenstein is very smart. He's from Geneva, Switzerland, and he goes to Ingolstadt to study where he gets very into philosophy and the philosophy of life, and he figures out how to create life, and he ends up creating a monster. The next character is the monster. He is eight feet tall. Frankenstein decides to make him really huge. For some reason, he thinks this is going to be so great, and then he ends up creating a monster that he can't overtake. The monster becomes very intelligent, and he has feelings. He's like a real actual human being. He struggles with loneliness and all of that throughout the novel. Okay, the next character is Alphonse Frankenstein, Victor's father. He's a very good man. Elizabeth Lavenza is the orphan that they take in. Victor's mother takes her in when they are young. She's from Italy, and her and Victor are raised together, and basically from the time they meet as children, it's decided that they're going to marry each other when they grow up. And the last character is Henry Clerval. So he is Victor's best friend from childhood on, and he spends a lot of time traveling the world with Victor, not knowing that there's like a monster after them, but he is a very good friend to Victor. Okay, so I'm just going to mention the themes briefly, and then at the very end, of the book, we will go over them in depth. So the themes are the dangers of ambition and knowledge, the danger of tampering with nature and God, family slash isolation from family, and then prejudice and alienation. Okay, like I said, the book opens and ends with letters from Robert Walton to his sister. So there are four letters before the chapters begin. So the first letter is on December 11th, written by explorer Robert Walton to his sister, Margaret Seville. Robert Walton is trying to find a crew to sail with him to the North Pole. This is a very dangerous mission. His sister doesn't want him to go, but he tells his sister about the preparations he and his crew are taking before their voyage. They plan to set sail in June, and he really hopes he discovers something great because he wants to be remembered as a man, an explorer who accomplished something great. The second letter is written on March 28th. He tells his sister that he has hired a vessel and a crew, and he says they seem sufficient to keep him safe and get to their destination, but he feels lonely because he can't find friendship in anyone in the crew because he doesn't believe them to be sophisticated or smart enough to be his friends, which seems pretty rude. But he assures his sister 
that his complaining doesn't mean that he is faltering in his decision to go through with this voyage. He tells her he's excited and scared and tells her to remember him fondly if she never hears from him again. The third letter is written on July 7th. His ship has set sail. He says nothing of real note has happened yet, but he has high hopes that they will reach his desires. Okay, so the fourth and last letter is dated August 5th. Robert Walton says that their ship got stuck between two sheets of ice, and as they waited to get unstuck, they saw a giant creature in the shape of a man being pulled in a sled by dogs. The boat becomes unstuck that night, but they decide to wait until the next day before continuing their voyage. But the next morning, they see a sled and one dog and a human man, not a gigantic one, who looks to be in very bad shape. The crew offers to help him, but he refuses until he learns that the boat is heading north. The man comes aboard. He's nearly frozen, emaciated, almost dead, and the crew warms him up, places him in a cabin near the fire, and two days pass without this man speaking, and they wonder if he has gone mad or lame. Robert describes the man as being the most interesting creature he'd ever seen. He says his eyes have an expression of wildness and even madness, but there are moments when, if anyone performs an act of kindness towards him, his whole countenance is lighted up with a beam of benevolence and sweetness. Robert doesn't allow any of the crew members to ask this man any questions. He doesn't want him to be bothered, but one crewman does ask this man how he ended up here, and the man says, sadly, to seek one who had fled from me. They tell this man of a gigantic creature that they saw the day before they found him, and at this, the man perks up and asks a ton of questions about what they saw. And later, Robert and the man converse, and he thanks Robert for saving him, and they become very close. This man regains his health slowly. Robert comes to think of him as a friend and a brother. So then he waits a little while before he writes again in this same letter on August 13th. It says that Robert has grown closer to this man, tells him his plans and aspirations, and the man cautions him not to let the idea of victory and fame cause him to do terrible things. The man says, I have a story for you about what happened to me. It's a cautionary tale. So then on August 19th, he writes again in this letter, this man tells Robert that he has suffered greatly. He had no plans to reveal his story to anyone, but he's like, I'll tell you, Robert Walton. And Robert plans to transcribe his story as he tells it. And that is where we get the story of Frankenstein. So this story is split up into three volumes. Some versions just have chapters 1 through 24, and there are no volumes. Each volume has some chapters in it. In the version that I have, it does volume 1, 2, and 3. And then the chapters within are one through whatever. And they each start over at chapter 1. There are versions who just have no volumes and they're just chapter 1 through 24. So I'll tell you eat like each option because I don't know which version you're reading. Okay, so volume 1, chapter 1. The man they rescued begins his story. He is Victor Frankenstein, although he doesn't reveal his name in this chapter, but he tells us about his parents and his birth. He is from Geneva, Switzerland. He says his family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. His father, Alphonse, was a prominent public figure with a glowing reputation. On page 17, it says he was respected by all who knew him for his integrity and his tireless attention to public business. He remained unmarried until later in his life. His closest friend named Beaufort fell into a bad way. He was a wealthy merchant who lost everything to pay off his debts. So he fled the country with his only family, his daughter Caroline, because he couldn't bear the humiliation of being poor in a town in which he was once rich and respected. He went to great lengths to hide himself, but Alphonse finally found him about 10 months after he left. But Alphonse was too late. His friend had died just before he arrived and left his grown daughter an orphan. So Alphonse takes his daughter Caroline home with him and cares for her. And two years later, Alphonse and Caroline are married. There is obviously a huge gap between them. But Victor says on page 18, but this circumstance seemed to unite them only closer in bonds of devoted affection. The two of them loved each other very much. They felt very attached to one another. His father especially worshipped his mother. And after their marriage, they moved from Geneva to Italy and traveled around Germany and France. And they had their first child, Victor himself, who was born in Naples, Italy, and were very loving and affectionate towards him. 
They wanted more children, but they had a hard time getting pregnant, and Victor was five years old. They still could not get pregnant. When Victor was five years old, they were traveling near Lake Como in Italy. His mother and father were in the habit of visiting poor residences everywhere that they traveled to see what they could do to help, mostly because of Caroline and the 10 months that she spent in poverty. She feels it's her responsibility to help as many people as she can. So she visited one family there and noticed one of the children, a girl, looked different than the rest of the children. The other children were dark-haired, dark-eyed, but this girl was blonde with blue eyes. Caroline finds out that this girl, her name is Elizabeth, is a foster child. Her German mother died giving birth to her, and her father was a Milanese nobleman. No one knew if he was alive or dead in a dungeon in Austria. Caroline asked her husband if they could adopt this young girl, and he agreed. They got the approval of her foster family and the church, and she came home with them. Caroline told her son Victor that she had a gift for him and she brought Elizabeth to him. And Victor took this literally and it says, looked upon Elizabeth as mine, mine to protect, love, and cherish. They called each other cousin growing up, but Victor says that no word or expression could accurately describe he says the kind of relation in which she stood to me. My more than sister, since till death she was to be mine only. So Caroline decides from that day that Victor and Elizabeth should be married one day. And remember I said in the original 1818 version of this book, they were actual cousins, but Mary Shelley changed it in 1831 to her being an orphan, probably because it was weird to have cousins marry each other. Okay, chapter two. So the Frankensteins moved back to Geneva after adopting Elizabeth, and they have a home in Geneva as well as a home on the countryside in Belle Reve near the lake. And this is where they spend the majority of Victor's childhood. When Victor is seven, they have another child, finally, a son. And Victor and Elizabeth, being less than a year apart, are raised together. They're very close. Victor describes their relationship as harmonious. They are very different, especially in their interests. She preferred literature and poetry, and he loved sciences. But they loved each other, and they spent all their time together. Victor was a very smart and curious child. On page 22, he says, The world was to me a secret which I desired to divine curiosity, earnest research to learn the hidden laws of nature, gladness akin to rapture, as they were unfolded to me, are among the earliest sensations I can remember. Victor's best friend and schoolmate is Henry Clerval. He is the son of a Geneva merchant. He loves the stories of heroes, tales of knights, and he would write his own stories and make Victor and Elizabeth act in his plays that he wrote. He desired to be a hero that would be written about someday, And Victor says on page 23, no human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. Their parents allowed them a lot of freedom and they didn't dictate what they did with their free time. And Victor describes his temper as sometimes violent and he was very passionate. This passion was a desire to learn the secrets of heaven and earth. And he says he continually finds peace through Elizabeth throughout his life. I feel exquisite pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood before misfortune had tainted my mind. So at the age of 13, Victor got really into natural philosophy, especially the theories of these three men, Cornelius Agrippa Paracelsus, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and Albertus Magnus. So Agrippa was an oculist, which is someone who believes in and studies the supernatural. He believed in natural magic through celestial and demonic forces. Paracelsus, among other things, was the father of toxicology, and Albertus Magnus is credited with discovering arsenic, and he is said to have discovered the philosopher's stone. So, Victor's father laughed at Victor's interest in these three men and told him it was trash and not to waste his time studying it. This, of course, only encouraged Victor to study it more And he says that fatal impulse led to my ruin. On page 25, he says, Here were men who had penetrated deeper and knew more. I took their word and I became their disciple. Victor becomes obsessed and even begins his own search for the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. He mostly searches for the elixir of life. He wanted the glory that would come along with discovering the elixir of life. 
He also studied and attempted the raising of ghosts and devils. He performed incantations. But one day, when he was 15 years old, there was a bad thunderstorm, and Victor watched as lightning struck and destroyed an oak tree. He had never seen such destruction, and at the time, a modern natural philosopher was staying with his family, and he explained the theory of electricity to Victor, and this was astonishing to him. It caused Victor to despise his studies of these three men's philosophies thus far, and he switched to mathematics and the more secure branches of science. On page 27, he says, When I look back, it seems to me as if this almost miraculous change of inclination and will was the immediate suggestion of the guardian angel of my life, the last effort made by the spirit of preservation to avert the storm that was even then hanging in the stars and ready to envelop me. He let go of his studies for a time, but he says that in the end it was ineffectual. He went back to these philosophers every time. On page 27, he says, Destiny was too potent, and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. So he credits this philosophy, this branch of philosophy that he got very obsessed with, with the destruction of himself through creating this monster. Chapter 3. Victor turns 17 and plans to go to the University of Ingolstadt, but before he leaves for school, Elizabeth gets scarlet fever. She almost dies, but his mother steps in and nurses her back to health. But in doing so, his mother then gets scarlet fever, and she ends up dying soon after this. Victor refers to this on page 28 as the first misfortune of my life, an omen of my future misery. On her deathbed, Caroline joins Elizabeth and Victor's hands and implores them again to be married. She asks Elizabeth to take care of her younger children. The family grieve for weeks. This is a huge loss. And Victor puts off his departure for school for several weeks. But he says on page 29, the time at length arrived when grief is rather an indulgence than a necessity. He consoles his father and Elizabeth during these weeks as he gets ready for his departure. And he tells us that he has never loved or been more enchanted with Elizabeth than he is now, watching her take over his mother's duties with the kids and covering up her own grief in order to take care of others. And this makes me mad on so many levels. I hate the narrative that women keep their own sorrow hidden to spare others. But on page 30, he says, she forgot even her own regret in her endeavors to make us forget. So before he leaves for school, Victor visits his best friend, Henry Clairval. Victor and his father had tried to encourage Henry's father to allow him to go to university with Victor, but his father refused. He's a merchant, and Henry is also going to be a merchant, and he wouldn't let him go to college, which Henry is really sad about. And the two best friends find it incredibly hard to leave each other. But Victor gets in his carriage the next day, waves goodbye to the people he loves most. He is nervous and sad because he has always been surrounded by his favorite people, and now he is alone. He must find new people. His journey to Ingolstadt was long, and he arrived and went to his solitary apartment, and the next day he went to visit some professors at the school. On page 31, he says, Change, or rather the evil influence, the angel of destruction, which asserted omnipotent sway over me, from the moment I turned my reluctant steps from my father's door, led me first to Mr. Crimp, professor of natural philosophy. So... He's setting it up like this is where his destruction really begins. So he converses with Mr. Crimp, and the professor asks Victor who he had studied. Victor mentioned he calls them my alchemists, those three men I talked about before. And the professor scoffs. He tells him all of that is nonsense, tells him that every minute he spent studying those alchemists was a waste, useless, they are ancient, and this angers Victor. Remember, he himself decided that they were useless to study, but hearing this professor of natural philosophy say it made him obviously more inclined to study them again, out of defiance. And he absolutely decided that natural philosophy was not for him. He talks about how he gave up on his pursuits of these alchemists in exchange for boring science. On 32, he says, I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. And he uses the word chimeras, and those are things that are hoped for but impossible to achieve, like the elixir of life. So he decided to steer clear of Mr. Kremp's class and lectures, and a few days later he found himself in a lecture by Mr. Waldman. 
He was the complete opposite of Mr. Kremp, younger, leaner, kinder, and a chemist. And he concluded his lecture with a speech that moved Victor greatly. He speaks about the ancient scientists and alchemists and what they did for the world and how they took risks in order to make discoveries. And Victor says the speech was announced to destroy him. I think it's interesting he again and again reiterates that these other people in his life led him to his destruction rather than his own decisions. Anyway, on page 33, he says, Soon my mind was filled with one thought, one conception, one purpose. So much has been done, exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. More, far more will I achieve, treading in the steps already marked. I will pioneer a new way explore unknown powers, and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. That night, Victor Frankenstein resolved to return to his studies of the ancient alchemists and devote himself to that science. He met with Mr. Waldman after his lecture. They got along very well. Frankenstein told him of his studies of the alchemists. The professor was very impressed. He says that modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of their knowledge. They were indebted to these early alchemists and philosophers. Mr. Waldman says he is happy to have gained a disciple and he'll help him learn and grow in whatever way he can. He encourages Victor Frankenstein to study all fields of science as to better understand it all rather than focus on only one, including mathematics. And he gives Frankenstein the books he wanted and shows him his laboratory And on page 34, Frankenstein says, Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. And I'm going to start calling him Frankenstein. I'll maybe switch back and forth between Victor and Frankenstein, depending on what part of life he's in. But this is the part where he starts his, like, study and creation of the monster. So I'm going to call him Frankenstein. Okay, chapter four. On page 35, he says, From this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, became nearly my sole occupation. So Frankenstein spends all his time studying these scientists. He often works through the night without even realizing. He studies Mr. Waldman, who he considers a true friend, and he even finds value in the information he receives from Mr. Kremp, the first philosopher that he didn't like. But he credits Mr. Waldman with all of his knowledge. So obviously he progresses very quickly and students and professors alike are all impressed. He spends two years studying this and never once visits his home in Geneva or really talks to his family at all. He sends very little letters. And he says on page 36, At the end of two years, I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments, which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university. At this point, he thinks of returning home to visit his family and friends finally, but he discovered something that made him stay. He becomes obsessed with the study of the human body, anatomy, and the function of the living body, physiology, and also with death and decay. On page 36, he says, With how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? So, when he starts studying the human body and how a living body functions, he also starts studying how a body decays. He recalls how his father was cautious to not introduce him to any supernatural horrors or superstitions, so he had no qualms about graveyards or dead bodies. He's not afraid of it at all. And he spent days and nights in charnel houses which are like vaults where human skeletal remains are stored often near churches used for depositing bones that are unearthed while digging graves super gross on page 37 he's talking about how he examined and analyzed all of the like really small details in the change from life to death death to life until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me a light so brilliant and wondrous yet so simple that while i became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated i was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries toward the same science that i alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret So after laboring for days and nights on this discovery, he tells us that he has become capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. He's elated about his discovery. Human creation is now within his grasp. 
And he warns us, well, not us, but he warns the man on the ship that he's speaking to. Remember, Robert Walton is the one who's transcribing this story. He says on page 38, learn from me how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. So when he discovered this power, he hesitated. He still had to figure out how to build a human with all the small intricacies and like veins and stuff before he could animate it. But he had figured out the animating part, the coming to life part. So he starts constructing a human being. And instead of building a small person to start off or even a normal sized person, he decides to make a gigantic person eight feet tall. And here he says he spent a ton of time collecting materials. And that just makes me feel so gross, like materials from where? You guessed it, the graveyard and the charnel houses, super cool, but he is absolutely stoked on this. He says on page 39, a new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. He even thinks of the possibility that he could figure out how to bring dead people back to life. My dude is playing God. And as you can imagine... After more than two years of nerding out in his laboratory, Frankenstein is extremely pale and thin, but he hits snags and bumps, but always figured out how to fix them. He says on page 39, I seemed to have lost all soul or sensation, but for this one pursuit. He warns us again against pursuing a study that weakens your affections or harms your soul. He says he spent all of his time working, and on 41 he says, I shunned my fellow creatures as if I had been guilty of a crime. Chapter 5. On page 42, Frankenstein says, It was on a dreary night in November that I beheld the accomplishments of my toils. So he sparked life into the inanimate being and was immediately disgusted and horrified. By the way, he doesn't tell us how he does it and in the end it's because he doesn't want anyone else to have the information on how to do it to create another monster so the monster comes to life and on page 42 he says i saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open it breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs frankenstein calls this a catastrophe he's horrified at what he's done he's now spent two years in isolation working on this just for it to turn out so badly He had taken steps to ensure that his creation would be beautiful, and it's the ugliest thing he's ever seen. And he says, Now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. So he leaves the creature in his lab and goes into his bedroom and tries to sleep. He finally falls asleep, but is disturbed by wild dreams. He dreams about Elizabeth that he goes to her, but when he goes to kiss her, she turns into the corpse of his mother, and then there's worms coming out of her rotting corpse i mean i don't know if i spent that much time with like rotting flesh i dug up from people's graves i'd have nightmares too he startles awake to find the monster standing above him and he's like staring down at him smiling and making sounds he can't speak and the monster tries to grab frankenstein but he runs out of the house and into the courtyard where he spends the rest of the night pacing back and forth worrying Like, what am I going to do? On page 43, he says, I felt the bitterness of disappointment. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me. Morning comes and he leaves his courtyard and walks around the town, not seeing any people pass by, just totally entrenched in his own thoughts. And in his head, he recites a portion of the poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And the portion of the poem says this, Like one on a lonesome road who doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. So after some time, he stops at an inn, and he watches as a carriage approaches, and Out of it climbs his best friend, Henry Clerval. They are delighted to see each other. For the first time in months, Frankenstein feels calm and joyful. And Henry tells Frankenstein that he finally convinced his father to allow him to come and study at the university. And Victor asks him about Elizabeth and his family. Henry tells him that they are all well, but a little uneasy about not hearing from him all of this time. Henry's like, I'm a little worried too. Honestly, you look really bad. He looks ill he looks thin and pale and frankenstein agrees he's like i haven't been sleeping i haven't been taking care of myself but he says that's over now hopefully i can get rest and improve 
So they arrive at Frankenstein's apartment, and he makes Henry wait on the steps while he makes sure that the monster is no longer in his apartment. And I'm like, you're not worried that he's, like, out of your apartment? <laughs> like, out roaming the town? That's not a concerning thought to you at all? So the monster's not there. He's relieved. He invites Henry inside. Frankenstein is very excited to have Henry there. He's excited the monster is gone, and he's, like, cheering. He's basically frantic, and Henry is like, whoa, chill, you're scaring me. And Frankenstein in this moment thinks he sees the monster come in, loses his mind, passes out, and he spends the next several months in bed recovering from his fit and fever. And Henry takes care of him all this time. He decides not to tell his father because his father would just try to take the trip and he is elderly, so he just decides to take care of Frankenstein himself. During this time, Frankenstein tries to tell Henry what he's done what he created but obviously Henry thinks he's insane but Frankenstein finally recovers in the spring Henry tells him that his family is worried and they need a letter from him in his own handwriting so that they know he's okay and he tells Henry how much he loves and appreciates him and Henry gives him a letter from Elizabeth chapter six so this is Elizabeth's letter she is worried about him she knows he's very ill she wanted to come and see him but she had to make sure that his father didn't make the journey because he is old and in poor health. She asks Frankenstein to return home to them. She tells him about his brother, Ernest, who is 16 years old now and wants to join the military. And she tells him that not much has changed in their home except for their friend, Justine Moritz, has come back to live with them again. So this is where she tells us the whole history of Justine Moritz. So Justine's mother was widowed. She treated her very poorly. And Victor's mother asked Justine to come and live with them. And her mother allowed it. Elizabeth reminds Victor that Justine was a great favorite of his. And she says on page 50, I recollect you once remarked that if you were in an ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it. So she tells him that after their mother died, Elizabeth observed Justine and saw that she was greatly saddened by it. She adored this woman who took her in. But on top of that, Justine's siblings all died and her mother was left alone. Justine's mother apologizes to her, asks her to come home, and she does, but she's very sad to leave the Frankensteins. So Justine spends some time with her mother. Her mother is sometimes kind and asks for forgiveness, but more often than not, she blames Justine for the death of her siblings. It's just a very bad situation. And shortly after this, Justine's mother dies and Justine returns to live with the Frankensteins and Elizabeth is very happy. So she tells this to Frankenstein. Elizabeth tells Victor also about his younger brother, William. He is tall for his age, blue-eyed, dimpled, and healthy, and loved by all the girls. It doesn't say exactly how old he is, but I think he's around 10. Elizabeth tells him some of the Geneva gossip. Beautiful Miss Mansfield is marrying John Melbourne, and her ugly sister Manon, those are Elizabeth's words, she calls her ugly, married a rich banker. Another one of Victor's friends married a French woman, and she just tells him about the town gossip. And she ends the letter to him, begging him to write back to her even one line so that she knows he's okay. So Frankenstein immediately writes back to ease her anxiety and once Frankenstein recovers from his illness he takes Henry around the university and introduces him to all the professors. This ends up causing Frankenstein great dismay to have to interact with his professors and talk about science. He hates anything to do with how he came to create such an awful creature and Henry notices this struggle and so he does his best to allow them to leave when Victor becomes distraught about some topic of conversation and when his professors praised him for his work Victor felt like they were torturing him. Henry decides to study the languages of the east Persian Arabic and Sanskrit. Frankenstein finds this interesting and a nice break from sciences so he takes up this study with Henry although he is not nearly as invested. He plans to visit home in the fall, but his trip gets delayed because of weather and the fact that he doesn't want to leave Henry at the university alone because he doesn't really know anyone, so he plans to go in the spring now. In May, he awaits a letter from his father with, like, the plans and dates for his visit, and Henry, in the meantime, suggests that they tour Ingolstadt as a farewell for Victor, so they spend two weeks touring the country, and Victor feels his spirits lifted. Chapter 7 
So when Frankenstein returns from his tour with Henry, there is a letter waiting for him from his father. His father tells him the horrible news that his youngest brother, William, has been murdered and asks him to come to Geneva as soon as possible. He tells him that the family went on a walk and Ernest and William wandered off. Ernest came back alone and so they searched all night for William and finally the father finds him around 5 a.m. in the woods dead with bruises on his neck from being strangled. He carries him home and Elizabeth is distraught. She exclaims that she murdered him, which she didn't, but she feels responsible because she had given William a valuable photo of his mother and Elizabeth and all of them readily assume that stealing that photo was the motive for killing William. So Elizabeth blames herself and his father asks Victor to come as soon as possible to comfort her and his family. So Frankenstein shows the letter to Henry, weeps for his brother, and immediately calls for horses and a carriage to take him to Geneva. As he travels, he thinks about his childhood, his poor brother, his family, how they must be suffering. And he's been gone for almost six years at this point, and he feels so overwhelmed by all of this. So he stops in a town called Lausanne for two days before continuing on. And when he comes into Geneva, he sees the lake by his home in the mountains behind Mont Blanc, and he weeps again. He says, Yet as I drew nearer home, grief and fear again overcame me. Night also closed around, and when I could hardly see the mountains, I felt still more gloomy. The picture appeared a cast dim scene of evil, and I foresaw obscurely that I was destined to become the most wretched of human beings. But the worst is yet to come. So he arrives in Geneva after dark, and the gate to the town is locked, so he spends the night in a nearby village. He feels restless, so he takes a walk to visit the spot where William was found dead. He crosses the lake in a boat and then walks around the beautiful landscape and finds the spot. On page 60, it says, I perceived in the gloom a figure which stole from behind a clump of trees near me. I stood fixed, gazing intently. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me. Its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspects, more hideous than belongs to humanity, instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon, to whom I had given life. He realizes that this creature must have been the one who murdered his brother. He says nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child. And he watches as the monster scales the mountain with incredible ease and like superhuman speed. He thought about going after the monster, but it disappeared before he could. He is absolutely distraught. It has now been two years since he gave the monster life and the monster ran away and Frankenstein let him escape. And he wonders if the monster has killed anyone else. So it's early morning now and he rushes to his father's house to tell him he knows who murdered William, but he realizes that if he tells them he knows who murdered William, then he will then also have to tell them that he created the monster and he isn't willing to do that. He justifies it by saying that no man or police officer or whatever could catch him anyway. He's too strong and he just scaled the mountain like it was nothing. And so he goes into the house deciding that he's not going to tell anyone about his creation. No one is awake. He looks at a photo of his mother on the mantelpiece and Ernest walks in and welcomes him and tells him he wishes he would have come three months ago when they were all happy. Frankenstein asks Ernest about Elizabeth. He says she is wretched and still blames herself, even though the murderer has been discovered. Frankenstein is surprised to hear this and thinks that they have found out that a monster killed William, but Ernest declares that their very own friend Justine killed William. Frankenstein is like, that's crazy. She couldn't have. She wouldn't have. Ernest says, Elizabeth doesn't believe it, but several things have come to light that prove Justine is the murderer and she is being tried that very day. So this is why they think it was Justine. The morning that William was found dead, Justine took ill and spent several days in bed. One of the servants was cleaning her clothes, found the photo of William's mother in her pocket, and this was proof to them that she had killed William and taken the photo. She denied it and was very confused surrounding the matter, which to them further proved her guilt. Frankenstein tells Ernest, like, you're all mistaken. I know who the murderer is. And Frankenstein's father comes in at this point and Ernest tells him that Frankenstein is like saying that Justine is innocent. His father says on 63, if she is, God forbid, 
that she would suffer as guilty. She is to be tried today, and I hope that she will be acquitted. So Frankenstein is eased by this. He's sure that Justine will be found innocent. He says on 64, I had no fear that any circumstantial evidence could be brought forward strong enough to convict her. My tale was not one to announce publicly. Its astounding horror would be looked upon as madness by the vulgar. Basically, he's like, no one would believe me if I told them and they would think I was mad. So I will not be telling anyone about the monster. Elizabeth comes in at this moment and they greet each other. She's very upset. She's hopeful, though, that Justine will be acquitted. And she says, this poor girl whom I sincerely love is to be torn away by even worse a fate. But Frankenstein assures her that that will not happen. Okay, chapter eight. So the trial begins at 11 a.m. that morning and the family goes to the courthouse. Frankenstein knows that if Justine is found guilty, that he will then be responsible for not one, but two deaths in his family. He says on page 65, a thousand times rather would I have confessed myself guilty of the crime ascribed to Justine, but I was absent when it was committed, and such a declaration would have been considered as the ravings of a madman and would not have exculpated her who suffered through me. (laughs) Frankenstein makes a lot of excuses for not confessing that he knows who the murderer is and that he created the murderer and is responsible for the murderer. He does it throughout the whole story. So Justine is calm in the court and she listened to the facts against her and she was surprised, horrified, and miserable to hear these facts. So these are the facts against her. She was out the whole night that the murder happened. The next morning, a woman in town encountered Justine near the spot where the Williams body was found just before it was found. The woman said that she looked strange and when she asked Justine a question, Justine gave a confused, unintelligible answer. Justine returned home around 8 a.m. and she said she had been looking for the child all night and asked if anyone had found him. She was shown the body and went into a fit of hysterics that had her bedridden for days and then the picture was found in the pocket of her clothing. Justine is then called to the stand to give her story and this is her side. She says she's innocent, God knows she is, and she hopes that character witnesses can attest that. She says, that with the permission of Elizabeth, she spent the evening at her aunt's house in a nearby village. She left her aunt's around 9 p.m. to head home. She encountered a man who asked if she'd seen a missing boy, and Justine was shocked to find out that William was missing, and she spent several hours that night looking for him, and when she went to go back to Geneva, the gates were closed, and she was forced to stay the night in a nearby barn. She didn't sleep well. She spent most of the night watching outside, but she dozed off in the early morning hours. Some loud footsteps disturbed her. She woke at dawn, and she left the barn and went home. And this is when she encounters the woman in town. She says that if she was near where the boy's body was found, that was unknown to her. She says she was bewildered by the woman's questioning since she hadn't slept, and that's why she seemed confused. And lastly, she says she has no explanation for how the photo ended up in her pocket. She knows this is damning against her and says perhaps the murderer placed it in her pocket, but she doesn't know how. So then Justine asks for character witnesses to speak for her. Several witnesses had been asked to speak, but none of them would come forward now, which is so mean. Elizabeth then asks to address the court. She is very close to Elizabeth, so it may be indecent for her to speak, but she says on page 68, But when I see a fellow creature about to perish through the cowardice of her pretended friends, I wish to be allowed to speak, that I may say what I know of her character. She tells the court that she has spent most of her life in the same house as Justine and considers her a sister, that Justine acted as a mother to William and loved him dearly, but Elizabeth's speech proves unsuccessful. Victor realizes that Justine is going to be found guilty, and he gets up and leaves the court in agony. Justine is indeed found guilty and set to be executed. But what Frankenstein and Elizabeth find out is that Justine confessed her guilt. They're shocked by this. Elizabeth wonders how she'll ever believe in human goodness again. She's like, there's no way Justine killed William. Victor wonders if he could have been mistaken, that he didn't actually see the monster, that the monster didn't actually kill William. He's kind of like hopeful of this, actually. This gives him a small amount of relief, and he wonders if maybe he's not responsible. But Justine asks to see Elizabeth, and Victor goes with her. 
They go to her jail cell and Justine tells them that she's actually innocent, but she confessed because she hoped it would help her gain salvation through God and be with William again in heaven. Elizabeth is absolutely distraught. She says she will prove her innocence. She's going to save her. And Frankenstein hides in the corner of the prison room on page 71. He says, where I could conceal the horrid anguish that possessed me. Justine addresses him. He can't speak. So Elizabeth speaks for him. She says, of course, he knows you're innocent. And Frankenstein knows that he is the true murderer. He says, anguish and despair had penetrated into the core of my heart. I bore a hell within me which nothing could extinguish. They stayed with Justine for several hours. Elizabeth had a difficult time leaving her, obviously, and Justine is executed the next day. Elizabeth spoke to the judges, but they didn't believe her. And Frankenstein also spoke to the judges, but they didn't listen to him either. Frankenstein makes more and more excuses here, saying that when he spoke to the judges, they were cold and unfeeling. So even if he did confess, they wouldn't listen or believe him. He says on 72, thus I might proclaim myself a madman, but not revoke the sentence passed upon my wretched victim. Again, so many excuses. Frankenstein ends the chapter just talking about how much anguish and despair he feels and how deep Elizabeth's grief is and how he's the one to cause it. And he knows the monster he created has now been responsible for two deaths in his family. Okay, so now this is volume two, depending on what version of the book you have. Volume two, chapter one. In some, it's just chapter nine. So it starts with this quote on page 73. Nothing is more painful to the human mind than after feelings have been worked up by a quick succession of events, the calmness of inaction and certainty which follows and deprives the soul both of hope and fear. Justine died, she rested, and I was alone. The blood flowed freely from my veins, but a weight of despair and remorse pressed on my heart. I wandered like an evil spirit. Basically, Frankenstein is overcome with shame and guilt and remorse, and he is tortured by this day and night. He self-isolates because that feels easier to him. The, he says the sound of joy was a torture to him. And his father notices Frankenstein's behavior and he tries to make him feel better, get him out of this funk. And he is like, do you think I haven't also suffered as much, if not more, and I'm not acting like you are? He basically reprimands Frankenstein for being so like isolated and depressed. And he tells him that he owes it to his dead brother to live his life and stop secluding himself. Frankenstein finds that the only solution to this is to avoid his father as much as he can. So as a family, they decide to go stay in their house in Belrive, which is about an hour and a half from Geneva, but it's still near the Alps. Here at their Belrive house, Frankenstein spends a lot of time on the lake in a boat. He contemplates suicide many times, just thinking about diving in the water and letting it swallow him up. But he doesn't because he doesn't want to leave Elizabeth, and he also doesn't want to leave them exposed to this monster without him. On page 73, he says, Remorse extinguished every hope. I had been the author of unalterable evils, and I lived in daily fear, lest the monster whom I had created should perpetrate some new wickedness. I had an obscure feeling that all was not over. Frankenstein is super dramatic, if you can't tell, and he says, that whenever he thinks about the monster, he gnashes his teeth and his eyes become inflamed, and he says he would do anything to extinguish him, except apparently tell anyone else about the monster or ask for help of any kind. His father's health is in decline because of his sorrows. Elizabeth is also depressed. She thinks that any pleasure she derives is offensive to her dead family members, so she's just determined to be sad forever. Elizabeth talks to Frankenstein about her sorrows and how she can't see any good in the world anymore. She talks about Justine and how, like, how could she have been found guilty when she wasn't? She says on page 76, When falsehood can look so like truth, who can assure themselves of certain happiness? Frankenstein felt worse listening to Elizabeth and her sorrows because he is the cause of the deaths in their family and he knows it. And Elizabeth tells him that she is worried about him, that he is somehow more wretched than her. She says on page 76, There is an expression of despair and sometimes of revenge in your countenance that makes me tremble. And she asks him to find peace. Frankenstein decides that he is going to climb the summit of the Alps, specifically the summit of Montenvert. 
which is a glacier in the Alps now known as Mer de Glace on the northern slopes of Mont Blanc. And it is the highest mountain in the Alps. This is like, I don't know if he's doing this because it's like torture or he thinks it's going to cure him, but he does it. It's been two months since Justine's death. Frankenstein rides a horse in the beginning and then gets a pack mule and he reaches a village at the bottom of the Alps. Chapter 10, or if it's volume two, chapter two. It starts with this line from on page 79. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. So he spends his days roaming around the Alps, feeling at peace, but the next day he wakes up feeling bad again, and he decides that that is the day that he is going to summit this glacier. And he decides he's going to do it without a guide. And as he climbs, he takes in the scenery, he recites Percy Shelley's poem, Mutability, to himself, and he arrives at the ascent at noon and overlooks the sea of ice, and he spends hours crossing this glacier. And honestly, reading this felt like reading Into Thin Air, the book about climbing Everest, which was the worst book I think I've ever read, and I'm so bored. (laughs) So bored. Anyway, he feels joy in this ascent until... Dun, dun, dun. In the distance, he sees a giant man running at him with superhuman speed. He says, it was the wretch whom I had created, obviously. And when the monster approaches Frankenstein, he seems to be in agony. Frankenstein calls him a devil, and he says, like, do you dare approach me? And guess what? The monster, who before this did not have language, speaks, and he is super smart and well-spoken. And he says a lot here, but the gist is... He says, I expected this reception. All men hate the wretched. He's miserable above all other things. He has suffered so much. And this is all Frankenstein's fault for giving him life, for creating him. And he asks Frankenstein, he's like, please listen to my story. You owe it to me. He's like, basically, I'm going to ask you to do something. And if you do it, I'll never hurt another human. But if you don't, then I'll make your life miserable, more miserable than it is. He says on page 83, Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. He talks about how alone he feels, how every living thing hates him, he's miserable. Frankenstein tries to attack him, but obviously fails. And in the end, he allows the monster into this cave that he is sitting in and out of the cold so that he can hear his story. On page 84, Frankenstein says, For the first time, I felt what the duties of a creator towards his creature were. Okay, chapter 11, or if you're in a book with volume 2, chapter 3. So the monster begins telling his story. He starts by talking about the confusion he felt during his creation and after he woke up. It took him a while before he could distinguish between his senses. He doesn't really say anything about when he woke up and went into Frankenstein's room, but he says he put clothes on before he left the house, and then he wandered into the forest near Ingolstadt. He said he ate berries from a bush. On page 86, he says, I was a poor, helpless, miserable wretch. I knew and could distinguish nothing, but feeling pain invade me on all sides, I sat down and wept. And after he weeps, the first thing he saw when he looked up was the moon, and he was awed by it. He spent several days and nights in the forest trying to figure out his senses and what to do. He drank from a stream, ate nuts and roots and berries, fell in love with birds because he heard them singing. He comes across an abandoned fire and finds that it's still burning and the warmth made him feel good. So he stuck his hand in the fire and was obviously burned. And he says on 87, how strange I thought that the same cause should produce such opposite effects. So he saw that there was wood on the fire. He gathered more, added them to the fire, but the branches were wet. So from this, he learns that the branches needed to be dry in order to catch fire. So he gathered more dry branches. Food was scarce. He did find out that the fire made nuts and roots taste better, but he was running out of food, so he knew he had to leave his fire, but he didn't know how to make a new one, so he was sad about that. He wandered until he found a small hut. He walks inside, and there's an old man in there making breakfast, and the old man screams, runs away, 
And so the monster stays and eats his breakfast and naps in his bed and the three little bears. And then he packed the rest of this food from this house and left. He realizes that the hut would protect him from the stuff that falls from the sky, the rain and the snow. So he planned to find another one. So he walks into a village, walks into a cottage nearby and kids immediately start screaming the rest of the town freaks out as well when they see him and so he runs away and he takes shelter in a low like little hovel thing that is attached to a small cottage and he says he's happy to have found a shelter from the barbarity of man so the small cottage was by a pool of water and next to a pigsty he arranges some straw on the ground of this hovel to make a bed. He steals some bread from the cottage as well as a cup to drink from, and he decided to stay there as long as he could. He felt safe there. So as he's hiding in this little hovel, there is a crack in the door and a young girl passes. She's carrying a pail of water on her head, and then a young man joins her, and then also an older man with silver hair. And he found that there was a window to the home through the hovel that had been like boarded up, but through a crack in the woods, he could see into the cottage, and he observed these three humans as much as he could. The old man began playing an instrument. The monster loved the sound. He observed the girl the most. He says on page 90, the gentle manners of the girl enticed my love. So watching these humans interact with each other made him feel happy and sad at the same time. But darkness comes, and he was shocked and delighted to see that the humans could extend the daylight with little orbs of light. And he watches them until the lights go out. And he notices they are making strange sounds with their mouths and seeming to communicate with each other. At the time, he didn't know they were speaking because he doesn't know what language or speaking was. He has, like, no knowledge of the world. Chapter 12, or if you're in Volume 2, Chapter 4. So the monster stays in this little hovel, and he observes the people in the cottage for a long time, like months and months. And but he doesn't dare expose himself to them because of how other people have reacted when they have encountered him. He sees that the young man mostly works outside and the girl works inside and he recognizes that the old man is blind and spends most of his time playing music or just sitting there. The monster sees that these people are not entirely happy. He observes that in them and he doesn't understand why or how he sees their lives as beautiful and plentiful, but he comes to realize that they are suffering from poverty. They had very little food, only what came from their garden and the milk from one cow that they had. The monster feels bad because he had been stealing from them, food from them, but he stops and begins finding his own nourishment just using berries and roots. And the monster also does what he can to assist these people. So he'll gather wood for their fire during the night and place it by their door and just do little nice things for him. And the people are confused by this, but they're happy about it because then they don't have to work as hard. And the monster realizes that they are communicating with each other using sounds. And he says he desired to learn this godlike science. He finds it difficult because he says words have an apparent connection with visible objects, and but he begins slowly learning words from them that they use a lot, like fire, milk, bread, wood, father, son, daughter. He learns that the son and daughter's names are Agatha and Felix. He spends this winter learning their language, silently assisting them in their chores, like he clears their walkway of snow and he gathers wood and all that stuff. He observes that Felix is always the saddest of the group, although he tries to hide it. And he sees Felix reading a book to the others and slowly discovers what reading is, that these symbols correspond with sounds. And so he basically just spends this time trying to learn language. But he longs to reveal himself to his friends. He loves them. He's starting to care for them, but he's afraid that they'll react just like the others reacted. So he decides that he needs to have a firm grasp on language before revealing himself so that he can speak and hopefully calm them. One day he sees his reflection in water and is terrified by himself, and this just makes him more sad. So the spring comes garden sprouts again and the monster spends all his time learning and trying to make these people happy by acts of service 
And he imagines presenting himself to them a million ways. He says on 97, I imagined that they would be disgusted until by my gentle demeanor and words, I should first win their favor and afterwards their love. So he's very hopeful of this. Chapter 13 or chapter 5. So spring comes along and with it comes a new person. So a woman arrives at the cottage on horseback. She's wearing a black dress and her face is veiled. And Felix is elated that she's there. She's also really happy to see him. And the monster describes her as angelic and beautiful with raven black hair and dark eyes. So she's Arabian. And all of Felix's sadness goes away upon the arrival of this woman. Her name is Safi. And she moves into the cottage. She doesn't speak their language. And so they have a hard time communicating. But the others spend a lot of time teaching her their language, which is French. And so this helps the monster learn even more. The day after Safi arrives, she played the old man's guitar, sings a beautiful song in her own language. And she was always happy. And she learned their language quickly, as did the monster. And the monster spends his days inside this little hovel. He only ventures out at night to get food and do the chores for them. Every night, Felix reads from a book called Ruins of Empires. And by listening to it, the monster also learns some of the history of the world. He learns about wars. He learns about the Greeks and the Romans, about Christianity, etc. And he is amazed and appalled that humans could kill each other. He says, I had heard of the division of property, of immense wealth and squalid poverty, of rank descent and noble blood. And what was I? Of my creation and creator, I was absolutely ignorant. But I knew that I possessed no money, no friends, no kind of poverty. I was, besides, endued with a figure hideously deformed and loathsome. I was not even of the same nature as man. I was more agile than they and could subsist upon a coarser diet. I bore the extremes of heat and cold with less injury to my frame. When I looked around, I saw and heard of none like me. Was I then a monster, a blot upon the earth from which all men fled and whom all men disowned? That's on page 102. So obviously the monster is feeling great sadness about his situation. And he says on page 102 that there was only one means to overcome this pain that he felt, and that was death. And he says, it's a state which I feared yet did not understand. So he continues to learn about the difference between man and woman, about birth. I think maybe Safi and Felix have a child together because he mentions that the old man dotes on the infant and he feels sorrow at not having a mother or a father or any family. And he asks the question again, what am I? Okay, that is the end of this episode. In the next episode, I'll cover the rest of the book and go in depth over themes.